Chapter 13 of Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island by May Falwell Hoisington and Lillian Elizabeth Roy Chapter 13 Thieves in the Night Billy had a habit of waking about dawn and stepping out of his tent to look around and gauge the weather for the day. So it happened about three o'clock one morning that he indulged in his usual nocturnal survey. The bay was calm in that still dark hour before dawn. Bill was about to retire after making his prognostications when the muffled chugging of a motor launch and the sound of a boat bumping against something in the back bay off the float stage instantly rendered him alert. He knew the islanders were wrapped in slumber, so he investigated, creeping down under the cover of the firs to a vantage point near the shore. It was too dark to see anything, but the muffled sounds convinced Billy that somebody was monkeying with their precious lobsters. Quietly he stole back and woke the captain and the boys. With many cautions for silence, they slipped into trousers and sweaters, thrust feet into sneakers, and rushed to surprise the marauders, Billy not forgetting his rifle. The unavoidable sounds made by the islanders in leaving the float stage were warning enough, so before they were well off in Billy's launch, the strange craft was flying toward the south. It's up with our main topsails, lads, and after her away, sang Billy in his glory as he gave the engine more gas. They could not seem to lessen the distance between the escaping thieves and their own boat. However, even though the pursuers, knowing the local waters well, were able to take some shortcuts. Well, their launch is a little speedier than mine, woefully admitted Billy. But they are not gaining much, Bill. Let's keep it up to the finish, urged Fred. Down through Gilkey's Harbour, out past Jobs Island, and into East Panopscot Bay, the thieves led the chase. Say, Captain, can't I fire a shot across their bows, begged Billy. Might as well, son, replied the captain. But the thieves paid no attention to this nautical command to stop. They must be heading for Pulpit Harbor or North Haven, declared the captain, taking his bearings. Billy simply couldn't stand the thought of their getting away. Oh, captain, just let me take one shot at their boat. The captain hesitated too long, for silence gives consent. So Billy, quick to take advantage of it, aimed for the engine of the fleeing launch. Gee whiz, you hit it, yelled Paul excitedly. You winged her all right, admitted Captain Ed with a grin of satisfaction now that the deed was done. After that, they drew up on the crippled boat and were close behind when she dashed in behind the big rock that marks the entrance to this blind harbor on North Haven. Then the thieves beached their launch and took to the woods. When the Sunset Islanders landed and examined the deserted launch, they found she was nearly out of gasoline as well as having had one of her spark plugs shot away. Guess she just had to put in here. She couldn't go much farther, said Fred. I don't believe there are any pulpit rock fellers. I know all the folks around here because my wife's a North Haven woman, you know, remarked the captain. Ah, joy, here's our lobsters, shouted Dudley with great relief. And what's this, cried Paul holding up the cushions and steamer rugs from Uncle Billy's launch. Well, I swan, breathed the captain amazed. Lobsters is one thing, but when it comes to taking chattels, 
That's another. What are we going to do now, Captain? Asked Billy. I'm awfully hungry, hinted Paul. Guess it must be most noon, ventured Dudley. The captain and Fred laughed and assured the boys that it couldn't be more than six or seven o'clock. The sun was shining gloriously and being up so early made the boys think it was ages since the hurry call for the chase. We'll have breakfast at my father-in-law's, was the captain's welcome announcement, indicating a white house that showed above the trees on the point. Let's take out our spark plug as well as the one left in the other launch, advised Fred, acting upon his suggestion. Captain Jotham, Captain Ed's father-in-law, was a jolly old man with a fringe of white whiskers framing his apple-red face, while his upper lip was carefully shaven. Well, well, hain't seen ye since a month o' Sundays, was his hearty welcome to his son-in-law. Come in, come in and set. Then the old captain's motherly wife appeared, and soon after, the hungry mariners were stoken up on coffee and doughnuts, with two kinds of pie cut in generous triangles. The boys exchanged looks of intense delight. The dream of their lives come true. They had heard about New Englanders eating pie and doughnuts for breakfast, but they had deemed it a legend, for they had never had an opportunity to test the truth. Now they found they were quite equal to the fact, although Mrs. Remington would have been horrified at her boys eating such a morning meal. When the story of the getaway and pursuit of the thieves was finished, Captain Jotham planned with Captain Ed how to capture the marauders. Anyway, Ed, I'm the constable, you know. Sure enough, and you'll be doing your duty to nab them rascals, assented Captain Ed. So armed with an old Winchester, Constable Jotham Heald left the house, followed by the rest of the party, Billy also armed with his trusty rifle. Hearing the exciting story, one neighbor after another joined the posse in the quest. Say, Jotham, bald and old salt just back from Rockland. Betcher them fellers air the same as is wanted for other things than lobsters. That's right, Jotham. I hear tell Thar war a launch stolen down Camden Way. Thar's a reward out for news of the thieves and the launch. Shouldn't wonder, but what this is it, added another hearty fisherman as they passed the thieves' craft. The hope of reward added to the zest of the pursuit, and before they left the shore, every active or able member of the settlement had joined the posse and had spent that reward. Meantime, the thieves had reached a remote part of the wooded shore and fearing capture had hidden in a natural cave. Here they collected a heap of stones to use for ammunition and provided heavy clubs in case of attack. They had not anticipated such an army, however, but had intended rushing the boys, figuring that the single rifle of the offensives could be rendered useless by the sudden surprise. The trail grew clearer to the home defenders as they neared the granite cave. Even Paul could see that the cobblestones had recently been removed from the ground. The two fugitives, hearing a babble of many voices, peered from the gloom of the cave. When they saw the crowd headed by a constable, as was distinctly shown, by the badge of office shining resplendent from his flowered suspenders. With a gun, they looked at each other in fear. In the name of the law, surrender, bawled Captain Jotham, aiming his Winchester at the dark opening of the cave. With the actual cowardliness of the unarmed criminal, the two men sneaked out, holding up their trembling hands in token of submission. Where's them bracelets, Ed? shouted the constable. And the two men were handcuffed, while the crowd looked on in intense satisfaction. 
It was the first time the boys had ever seen handcuffs used and it had a most subduing effect on their plastic minds. It was high noon when the posse dispersed before the healed homestead and hunger added to fatigue had so quieted the islanders that they presented quite a contrast to the eager rush and hullabaloo of the morning. Captain Jotham's wife, accustomed as she was to hearty appetites, had provided amply for the demand. Hot biscuits, jam, honey, preserves and more pie fraternized on the checkered red and white tablecloth while smothered haddock and boiled potatoes provided pyramids of delicious if humble provender. And full justice was done that meal by the representatives of the law. The topic of conversation centered about the reward and Captain Jotham promised to take charge of the division so that the islanders would receive their exact share. But don't set your hopes too high, boys. You won't be millionaires on that reward. If we get it, said the constable. Why the whole launch ain't worth more than a hundred, or even less, added Captain Ed. That morning, Mose had been awakened by the noise of Billy's launch as the boys started in pursuit of the thieves. By the time he was half-dressed, however, and down by the float, only a chugging of the two engines could be heard by the nonplussed cook. The morning passed without sight or sound of the islanders, so Mose became worried. He tramped back and forth from Treasure Cove to the float stage and then down to the south end, dragging the spyglass with him. He almost forgot to eat, so deserted and worried was he. Then late in the afternoon, when it seemed to him that he was doomed to remain a second Robinson Crusoe and Man Friday combined in one, he heard a faint echo over the water and anxiously glued his eye to the spyglass. There were familiar forms approaching in Billy's launch. Mose was so relieved to find them all safe at home that the unusually white grin on his generous mouth almost met at the back of his round head and elicited a warning from the captain. Take care, Mose. The top of your head will come off. The whole thrilling tale of the adventure was told Mose while they all sat about the supper table. And many were the interruptions in the telling as one or another boy remembered a detail of that chase and capture. While waiting for dessert, the boys nodded and dozed and finally Fred yawned and got up from the table. Say, Mose, I'm so tired my jaws won't move. Keep my dish of pudding for breakfast. When the other boys followed Fred's action, Mose could hardly believe his eyes and ears, not wait for their favorite pudding. The next morning, Anna appeared with her charge, Teddy. I got a letter from your mother yesterday that she'll be home soon, so I thought I'd better come over and help Mose clear away the two apparent traces of your bachelor hall. Although the boys would not admit it, they were glad to see little Teddy and Anna again, and Fred picked up his brother and carried him off for the time the governess was occupied in helping Mose. As they worked, Mose remarked, Deed, I think it's high time the missus is coming home. Artek noticed that none of these ructions of being pirates or shooting thieves happen when she's here. I agree with you there, Mose, but I think we're lucky to have any islanders sound and alive to meet her at the homecoming, added Anna with a sigh. The day the lady of the island was expected, the boy started for Rosemary to meet her there. Everything had been left in readiness at the foot of the flagpole so that Mose could hoist the flag when the signal came from the returning launch. At that signal, the young islanders were to sing My Country, Tis of Thee, and Our America 
while the flag was hoisted and waved from his position on the big rock of Treasure Cove. Everything went off as planned, and Mrs. Remington was greatly pleased at the demonstration of patriotism shown by the young folks. I don't know how it happened that your father and I never had the broken flag staff replaced this summer, but so much takes place every time he's with us that it naturally was left for a time when there was nothing else to do and that never happens," explained Mrs. Remington in apology for the neglect, then added, Now, however, we have a far better staff than the old one, and I want to thank you for the forethought and labor. You must thank Captain Ed too. He helped a lot, said truthful and loyal Billy. Indeed I do, and he knows it, and for all his care of you, said his mother, taking Captain Ed's hand in hers. At the earnest words of appreciation, the captain's memory reviewed recent events. Piracy and posse were hardly to be considered as acts of caretaking, and the conscientious captain's sense of justice rebuked him in accepting the gratitude. Oh well, he thought to himself, all's well that ends well, and no one got in trouble. Elizabeth and Edith had accompanied their mother home and were glad to be back on their dear old island, although they had enjoyed their visit immensely. The morning following Mrs. Remington's return, Elizabeth said, Mother, we want our annual clam bake and it can't be postponed much longer cause Trixie is going back home. Well, Uncle Tom is coming over today to give the boys another lesson in target shooting and we will give him the invitation to carry to the co people and we can tell the Iola Bella family about it when we go there for dinner tonight. Gee, I'm glad we got those lobsters of ours back again, murmured Billy. During the next few days, everyone worked hard to have this clam bake surpass those of former years. Clams were dug, fish were caught, the captain's broilers were requisitioned, while Rosemary and Iola Bella promised to supply the ice cream and cakes. The day before the fete, Elizabeth was brooding deeply while assisting her mother with candy making. Suddenly, she said, Oh dear, I do wish father could be with us tomorrow. Her mother smiled and said, well, wish hard enough and see what happens. We used to say, if wishes were horses, all beggars might ride. But you might change that to say, if wishes are motors, our father will arrive. Elizabeth eyed her mother suspiciously and saw a look that caused her to clap her hands. Oh, mother, goody good. I know he's coming. And away flew Elizabeth to spread the wonderful news to all on the island. Say, that's the best yet, cried the boys. There's no one can broil lobsters like father, declared Billy. And we want him to award that prize he offered for the biggest one, added Dudley. That's right. He said in a month's catch and the time is up, admitted Fred. 11 a.m. of the great feast day found Mr. Remington at Rosemary. The little plan of the extra weekend visit having been found possible of fulfillment. Fred and Billy met their father in the new launch. On the trip to Sunset Island, Billy proudly displayed its speed and his efficiency in managing the motor. Fred regaled his father with a very full account of the pirates and the chase of the thieves to Pulpit Harbor. As the elder of the trio listened to the story, he chuckled and thought to himself, Chips off the old block. But very seriously he remarked, Boys, what did your mother say to all this? Oh, father, we haven't told her all we told you gasped they. 
And by the time Mrs. Remington did hear most of the details of the exploits, the flight of time had shed its halo about the daring and possible dangers her boys had incurred. That noon, the sun shone down upon a fleet of visiting craft loaded with eager and hungry clambakers. Not only were the Rosemary and Iola Bella families fully represented, but many guests also accompanied them. Mr. Remington broiled lobsters, Captain Ed steamed clams, the boys dished fish chowder and Moe's broiled young chickens until it seemed the world would be feasted that day. But all disappeared as if by magic and still the clam bakers found out-of-way corners where cake and ice cream could be stored. At last, at peace with all earthly things, the visitors sat down to enjoy the entertainment about to be furnished by the woodcrafters. Our first number on the program will be a moving picture drama of the Cathardin Pirates, announced Fred. And a realistic scene took place in which one of the male visitors was dragged out and became a helpless victim of piracy as practiced by Sunset Islanders. The production was one of Fred's first attempts at playwriting and received due applause as such. Little Red Riding Hood was then acted out, but the wolf looked suspiciously like the cinnamon bear of the masked ball on Iola Bella. The woodchopper played his part so enthusiastically that it brought an encore. And so Edith was once more swallowed in the steamer rugs of her grandmother's bed and once more disgorged. After this, Mr. Remington very seriously announced that the prize offered by him for the largest and heaviest lobster came near to being twins. The only point that saved this awful monstrosity was the fact that a claw on one was larger than those of the other. Thus, Paul was recompensed for his encounter with the lobster's claw during the first catch of the season. Paul was so delighted with winning the first prize that he went about showing each guest the claws of the fine lobster he had caught and promising Trixie a print of the photograph he had taken of it the day before. Dancing in the council ring helped digestion and the Victrola Uncle Tom brought over that day furnished music. Among other farewells that evening, Trixie's were specially prolonged as she was to leave Rosemary on the morrow. During his unexpected visit of three days, Mr. Remington took an active interest in the target practice and the boys received many important and wise advices. With target practice, fishing, canoeing and other sports, the days flew by, while weekly councils in the ring marked the attainment of woodcraft honours. The outdoor life had tanned and hardened Paul and Dudley, so that they were a credit to the island. Moreover, the boys were now of real service in camp life, having learned to row, be of help in sailing, expert in swimming, knowing something of first aid, and being able to cook a simple camp meal. Then came a letter in the morning mail one day, and upon reading it, Mrs. Remington announced, Mrs. Baker says the trip is all arranged. The girls of Vicky Chioki Band and the boys of Grey Fox Band are crazy to come with Dr. Baker and Mr. Hubert when they motor to Maine. So she has changed her plans of coming with the doctor. Oh, that's too bad. I know she would have enjoyed a visit with you, mother, said Elizabeth. What will they do then? asked Billy eagerly, trying to hide his pleasure at hearing that Fiji and Bob Baker would accompany the doctor instead of Mrs. Baker. Why, Mr. Hubert will take the big touring car and take Janet, Zan Baker, Nita Brampton, Elena Marsh and Paul's sister Hilda, the original five who started 
Vicky Chioki band of Wako tribe, while Dr. Baker will use his new seven-passenger car to carry Fiji and Bob Baker, Jack Hubert, Harold Everett and the luggage. Why Jane and Jack Hubert are with their mother at Woodchuck Camp in the Adirondacks, exclaimed Elizabeth. Yes, but Mrs. Baker and Miss Miller are going from the city to the Hubert Camp and visit there while Jane and Jack take the two places in the cars to come on here with the other woodcrafters, explained Mrs. Remington. Wild expressions of delight came from every boy and girl present, and then Billy quieted them with a practical remark. Say, those bands won't let us put anything over on them in a grand council, I bet. That's right. We ought to put on steam and show the grey foxes what we have done this summer, cried Dudley. Fiji Baker told my sister that they meant to saw wood on the farm this summer so's they could show some work at the Grand Council in New York in the fall, added Paul. What's more, they must have known of this visit some time ago and been hitting it up to show off when they get here, suggested Fred. Say boys, wouldn't it be great fun to hold one mighty council with the Pentagoet tribe as host together with the girls of the big lodge of Waco tribe and their little lodge where Paul, Edith and Teddy first started in woodcraft work, volunteered Elizabeth. Don't forget the grey foxes too, added Dudley. Oh yes, let's. I want to show Hilda how I have improved this summer, urged Paul. The others smiled encouragingly at the boy in whom there surely had been miracles wrought since he joined woodcraft. In place of the whining and discontented ways, he had acquired a happy optimism the shirking of duties was now a forgotten habit. The irregular eating, oversleeping, prevarications and other undesirable qualities were now gone for good. And good normal ideas and character-forming exercises took their place. Mrs. Baker said that the doctor had been so overworked that he needs a change. So Mr. Hubert planned this outing to entice him. They will motor from the Adrenodacs in easy stages and then spend the third weekend of August in Camden, so that we can have them over to visit the island for a day at least, said Mrs. Remington, looking again at the letter from Mrs. Baker. If we hold that last grand council when the visiting tribes are here, why not let that occasion be used to crown Fred a sagamore? He has just won his 24th feather with the sailing coop, suggested Elizabeth eagerly. That's a splendid idea, Lizzie, cried Billy using that tabooed nickname for his sister. We can have some grand water sports as well as other fun. Instantly quotes Fred to cover the too evident pleasure he felt at the proposition. We can have a spearing the sturgeon, a canoe tag and a tub tilting contest as well as a talk fest and other fun, said Dudley, anxious to add his quota. Say, don't you boys go and forget we girls are in on this council, warned Elizabeth with a menacing look. Of course, responded Paul, magnanimously. And we are going to claim honours for different things too. I'm going to finish my hostess and Shingabee degrees as well as my handicraft coups, continued Elizabeth. I guess those girls of Wako tribe will have some stunts to show too, added Edith. I think I will plan a program that will give each woodcrafter time and opportunity to show what he or she has done this summer, suggested Mrs. Remington. Yes, mother, do that, came a chorus of voices. So the lady of the island produced an elaborate program that later was entered in the tally book as one of the grand councils and the best ever held on the island. 
From that day until the time the expected tourists were to arrive, many hours were given to finishing up the lists for claiming coups and honours. Birds, flowers, insects and fish were catalogued and learned by everyone until the required number for each coup or honour were secured. Athletics and camp crafts were displayed to the necessary witnesses until Fred declared that he would demand the pay for the office for recording secretary if the writing kept up much longer. But all mundane things have an end and so has the waiting for an important event. Uncle Bill and Mr. Remington met at last on their insular plane just before the arrival of the guests at Camden. They proved to be of great assistance when it came to arranging the rules and regulations of the water sports plant. Then the day the touring cars arrived at Rosemary, every islander was up and ready to jump into the launch immediately after breakfast. They intended to act as escort for Uncle Tom's powerboat, which would convey the visitors. The council ring had been elaborately decorated with totems painted on the round and oval breadboards salvaged from the wrecked Cathaden, and flags waved in the breeze, the glorious stars and stripes evident above all. End of chapter 13